in an insignificant corner of a conquered nation. This is Jesus, a traveling preacher, a homeless outcast called crazy and possessed. This is Jesus, another hopeless rebel, mocked and beaten, hung on a cross to die. This is Jesus, another lifeless body, stuffed into a borrowed tomb, soon to be forgotten. Is this really Jesus? Wake up. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. This is Jesus, sent by the Father to be crushed for the sins of the world. This is Jesus, declaring to all he would be killed and then raised to life on the third day. This is Jesus, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. This is Jesus, a missing body from an empty tomb on a Sunday morning. This is Jesus, the image of invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the Lamb of God, the light of the world. This is Jesus, Savior, Lord, King, Alpha, Omega, Creator, Redeemer, Friend to Sinners, Hope of Nations, the Messiah. This is Jesus, the resurrection and the life for all who trust in Him. Wake up, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. This is Jesus. I know you all have been welcomed already today, but I am going to do it again. Happy Resurrection Sunday, church. There are two big holidays in our Christian faith, and, and we know those two holidays to be Easter and Christmas. And it is very easy for me to make the case that it is indeed Easter that holds the most significance to us, the one that we hold as Christians closest to our hearts. Christmas definitely may get the most attention, don't get me wrong, right? I do. I love the lights, and I love the trees, and I love the presents. I love all of it that, that is Christmas. Christmas is probably a little bit more popular because Christmas has been adopted very well by the world around us. And who doesn't love celebrating the birth of a baby? It's something very universal that we all find joy in when new life Comes. Now, Christmas isn't just the celebration of any birth either. It is the, the birth of our Messiah. Easter, though, Easter is on a whole nother level. Because at Easter, we're not just celebrating birth. What we are celebrating is rebirth. We are celebrating the resurrection of that same Jesus who was once born in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. That same Jesus that was born in the presence of farm animals, now that same Jesus on that Sunday morning would rise from the grave. He would defeat death. And it's because of this, it's because of this day, this Resurrection Sunday, that all of us who call ourselves Christians can have hope. Right? It's in this truth that we, we find our identity. 
And it's because of this truth that Jesus resurrected from the grave that for the last month or so, you all have been coming and you've been writing messages on this big white board that has been in our foyer. We posed the question, or we left the blank unfilled. We said, Jesus is. And then y'all have been kind enough to come across and use those colorful markers and tell us exactly who Jesus is to you. So let's look at a few of them. We'll fill in the blank here. Jesus is the way. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my provider. I think Addie uh, is probably back in class, but I want to give her credit because this one's simple and it's beautiful. Jesus is good. Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my salvation. Jesus is my light. Jesus is the great physician. He's the name above all names. Blythe. Jesus is love. Jesus is undeniable. Someone up here, Jesus is cool. I mean, I can't argue with that. Jesus is cool. Jesus is my song. Jesus is the only reason I am alive. Maybe my personal favorite. I'm not going to throw the person who did this one under the bus, but Jesus is my rock, and that's just how I roll. That's a good one. My wife was actually listening to my sermon a couple weeks ago. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is enough. Above all else, Jesus is risen. And it's because, and only because, that Jesus is risen that I can say with confidence that Jesus is my rock, that Jesus is my Lord. It's the only reason I can say that Jesus is the one who saved me. It's why I can say that Jesus is the only reason that we are here. That Jesus is love. And because he is risen is why I can say that Jesus is the one who never left. Right? It's only because Jesus is living, or Jesus is risen, I should say, that we talk about Jesus in the present tense. Right? It's because Jesus is not dead. Jesus lives. His story is not done, too. He also is going to be returning again. Jesus is risen, and Jesus is alive, and that is good news. In one way, shape, or form, we are all here today because Jesus is risen. Perhaps you are part of the Meadowbrook. Yes, if you were here Friday night, I got the name right. The Meadowbrook family. And there is nowhere else that you would rather be this morning than celebrating your resurrected Savior with your church family. If that is you, I am grateful and glad that you are here. Right, maybe there's another church that you call home, but you're in town visiting family, so you've decided that you're going to come and worship with us today. If that is you, I am grateful and glad that you are here this morning. Maybe you are only here because someone handed you an invitation and said, would you please come to church with me? And maybe you don't really know exactly why you're here. If that is you, I am grateful and glad that you are here today. And I also have to be a realist. There's also a good chance that there might be somebody here today that doesn't want to be here today. That the only reason they are sitting here today is because either mom or dad or grandma and grandpa said, I'm sorry, it's Easter Sunday, get your butt out of bed, we're going to church. And if that is you this morning, I am glad and I am grateful that you are here. No matter why you think you are here today, the reason you are here is because Jesus is risen. 
The fact that we serve a risen king is why I know that you are also here for a reason. Right? Whether this is your first Easter service you've ever attended or whether it is your 80th, you are here today because your creator is passionately pursuing you. And whether it's the first time or whether it's the 800th time, he wants to remind you of the hope and of the joy that is Easter morning. He wants you to be reminded of the lengths that he went to to redeem you so that you could not only live eternally, but you could also live abundantly. So now you know why we're all here. But what's next? What was next for me is, is I started to think about the fact is that if you would have come to me 10 years ago and you would have said, Daniel, what are the two easiest sermons for a preacher to prepare? I would have told you without hesitation the two easiest sermons for a preacher to prepare would be Christmas and Easter. Right? I mean, we already know what we're going to talk about, so you already kind of have a leg up on everything. Right now, today, I can tell you this is an absolute fallacy. I've come to learn that Christmas and Easter are actually probably two of the most difficult sermons to assemble. And here's why. It's because of all of your expectations. It's Easter morning. So here's what you expect. You think that what we should do first off is we have to properly memorialize the most important day in human history. You would really love to be reminded of some of those treasured moments, those treasured parts of the stories that you've been hearing since you were little. Now, while you also want to be reminded of all the stories you've been told since you were little, you'd also like to learn something new. No pressure there. If it's not too much trouble, you'd also like there to be a powerful, relevant a gospel presentation mixed up in here today, right? And, and, and maybe even throw in some apologetics for those who are doubters. Oh, and if you can also, too, keep it under 30 minutes because we all want to get to lunch, right? Right, no pressure. It's my goal each and every week to bring a message that edifies the church and cause the lost to come home. But on a day like Easter, that pressure gets turned up to about a thousand. So I have to think to myself, where do we go in Scripture? Where do we go that maybe we can check off as many of these boxes as possible? And where I landed is maybe not the traditional place of where you think we would be on Easter morning. We will be in the Gospels. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, but we're going to be right smack dab in the middle of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15. If you have spent any time at all in church, you've probably heard some sermons on Luke 15. There are parables that are found in this chapter that are not found in, in any of our other Gospels. And they're parables that, very honestly, preachers love to teach on and churches love to be taught on. The reason is, is in these parables, it's very easy for us to see ourselves. I actually heard a preacher this week, he, he, said, he said, often we read our Bibles like a yearbook. And I was confused when he said that. I don't know if any of you have ever actually heard that before, but I thought it was insightful, so I kept listening. I didn't quite understand, though, so I did bring with me here, I brought my class of 2001 uh, Nishamani Redskins uh, yearbook. Yes, they were called the Redskins. It was 2001. It was a different time. No one protested me. I did not pick the name, okay? 
But when I pull out my yearbook, the very first thing that I do with it is I flip to the back and I find the index. And when I find the index, I look for my own name. I see what page my picture is on, and then poof, there I am. I know the hair, yeah. Remember though, different times. It was a dark, dark time back then. The point is, the most visited page in your yearbook is the one where you find your own picture. Often, we read our Bibles the same way. We, we pick our Bibles up with the expressed intention that we are going to find ourselves in whatever it is that we read. Okay, this is why I love Luke 15. It's very easy for us to, to open Luke 15 and see ourselves in the parable of the lost sheep. Right? We were once lost, and now we are found. We can very easily see ourselves in the, the parable of the lost coin, because when we look in the mirror, we see something of great value. And we see ourselves in, in the parable of the prodigal, because most of us, if we are honest, there have been times where we have run. There have been times where we have squandered the Father's gifts. Okay, all three of those statements, they, they certainly can be true. But if we're only reading Luke 15 to see ourselves, we miss something very important. When we start reading these parables and our only intention is to find ourselves in the story, we miss something. We, we miss some of the context. So before we discuss these parables, I want to set the stage for you appropriately of what is happening around Jesus. And we're going to start by looking at the first three verses of Luke 15. As always, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, it's wonderful if you have those open. But if you came today without a Bible and you don't feel like opening up the one that's in front of you in the pew, that's fine too. Just look at the screen behind me. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So we have sinners. We have tax collectors. Basically, these are the others. Okay, these are the, the yucky, dirty people. And all of these yucky, dirty people, they all start crowding around Jesus. And at this site, the, the, the religious Pharisees and the scribes, they all begin to complain. They're shocked that Jesus would dine with sinners like this. The question has to be asked, did Jesus not have any better dinner invitations? Was there nothing, not a better offer on the table for him? And if we look back, at Luke's Gospel, what we're going to learn is that, yeah, he did have better invitations on the table. We actually only have to go back to the beginning of chapter 14. And in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus finds himself at another dinner party. Apparently, this Jesus had a lot of invitations to dinner. Luke 14.1 says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, can this be? Right? What we're told here is that Jesus is having dinner on the Sabbath with the ruler of the Pharisees. Not just any old Pharisee, right? Maybe every Pharisee had some degree of power, had some degree of authority. But on this particular Sabbath, 
He's dining at one of the rulers of the Pharisees' homes. And they invited him there so that they could observe him. Presumably there were other Pharisees at this this dinner as well that night. Other Pharisees came and they gathered at the home of this powerful man. But the guest of honor, the one that they were all there to hear from, to observe, was Jesus. And what we see in chapter 14 is that as Jesus dines with the Pharisees, he confronts them about many of their preconceived notions as he regales them with a parable. And after he's done talking in verse 15 of chapter 14, this is what it says. It says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, so one of the Pharisees who was at the table who heard Jesus teaching, he says to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The teachings that Jesus offered to the Pharisees that night, even though they may have cut deep, still one of the Pharisees stands up, and what he basically is giving Jesus there is the equivalent of, a, of an amen brother. Right? What he gives Jesus there is, if we were still in the South, would be the equivalent of somebody standing up and saying, preach, pastor, right, after you make a good point. We're told that that Luke's gospel is an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Most of the time we take that to assume that that Luke's gospel is presented to us in a chronological order. So while I don't know exactly how much time has gone by, whether it be a day or a week or a month, we know that the very next event that is recorded for us after this dinner at the Pharisee's home is what we're about to read in chapter 15. What happens in chapter 15 happens after what we just read in chapter 14. In chapter 15 now, the difference is we have these others, these sinners, who now also begin to circle around Jesus. The sinners are coming to Jesus. These are the ones that the Pharisees, if we're honest, they have no need for these people. Those are the ones who are coming to Jesus. But Jesus meets with them, And he dines with them just as he did with the Pharisees. And they don't like this. right? Perhaps their feelings are hurt. But we have to think about this juxtaposition. When Jesus is in the home of the powerful man, then they shout amen to his words. But when he is in the home of a tax collector, they grumble. Then in verse 3, 15.3, it says, So he told them this parable. And this kind of feels like a little bit of false advertising, actually, uh, because he doesn't just tell them one parable, but he tells them three. And they really all go together. It's really just one parable that is told in three separate parts. The question that we have to ask is who are these parables actually being told to? Think about the timeline of what's happened here. He he dines with the Pharisees. Then the sinners draw near to him. The Pharisees complain about it. And in response, he begins to teach these three parables. What I'd like us to see today is who he's actually addressing when he talks here. It is not the sinners. He's addressing the Pharisees. But we identify more with the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son, don't we? And since we often do look for ourselves in Scripture, 
it's much easier for us to relate with that tax collector than it is with the Pharisee. Also important to remember that often when Jesus teaches in parables, he, he really only has one point that he wants to make in his parables. His parables typically aren't these multifaceted uh, uh, great lectures. They are short and sweet and to the point, and they have one point to be made. So keep that in mind as we read. We're going to look first at verses 4 through 7. And this is the, the words of Jesus. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Sheep were incredibly valuable back at this time. Even a, a, a high, highly Pharisee would have to agree that if you were to lose even one sheep, you should go and find it. Even if you still had 99 sheep that were safe in the pen, you should still go out and search for that one. That 1% of your flock had such an immense value to a shepherd. So when he would find that 1% and he would bring it home, when his flock was finally whole again, he would bring his shepherd friends together and they would party. And Jesus says, if you think that a shepherd party is crazy... Wait till you see what heaven is like when one sinner repents. But he's not done making his point. We have the one sheep out of the hundred, the 1%. Now Jesus has to up the ante a little bit as he continues in verse uh, 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In our first parable, what was lost? It was one out of a hundred sheep. Now in our second portion of the parable, what is lost? One out of ten coins. And this woman who lost 10% of her coins, we need to keep in mind we're not talking about dimes. Okay, th This lady did not lose 10 cents and then just begin obsessively, compulsively sweeping her home until she found it. The, these coins most agree that what they would represent is about a day's worth of wages. These 10 coins to this wom woman, they could have been her entire life savings. These ten coins could have represented all the money that she has in the world. And then poof, just like that, 10% is gone. And when she finds it, she is so relieved. We can relate to this. Not many of us have ever lost a sheep before. But almost all of us have misplaced our wallet or misplaced our purse. And you know the joy that you have when you discover that your wallet is not lost. One of your kids just decided to stuff it in the couch cushions. She is so happy to have her coin back. 
She is so grateful that she did not lose 10% of what she had that she calls all of her people together, and again, they celebrate. But Jesus again reminds them that this celebration still pales in comparison to when just one sinner repents. And then we get to the third portion of the parable. This is the big one. This is the one that, that we know really well, the prodigal son. It begins in verse 11 where it says, And he said, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. We remember that the joy in heaven over one repentant sinner is greater than the joy of a shepherd who finds 1% of his flock. That the joy in heaven over one repentant sinner is greater than the woman who finds 10% of her savings. And now we have this man who has only two sons. And if one of those sons were to become lost, he would lose 50% of his children. And the younger of the two sons, he goes to his father and he says, Dad, you know, um, I've been thinking about it and I would rather just have my inheritance now. I, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want to go out and I want to live my best life the way that I want to and I want to do it today. This younger son, he is heartless. He is greedy. He is disrespectful. Why? Because he's a sinner. He, he took his father's money and he runs off. He goes to a faraway land, we're told. That in itself is something that no good Jewish boy would do. You're not going to leave the land of your people, the land of your God. You're not going to leave where the temple is and the sacrifices are made and go and live in another land where other gods are worshipped. But he does this because he is a sinner. And then we're told that when he gets to this far-off land, he squanders all of his father's money on prostitutes and reckless living because he was a sinner. And there's one day where all of the fast living, where all of the good times, it finally catches up to him. Right? The money, it finally runs out, and he finds himself now employed, having to work for the people of this far-off land. And the job that he's doing is he's caring for pigs. Again, a job no good Jewish boy would ever consider doing, but he's a sinner. He is so desperate and so hungry that he considers actually eating the slop that is left over from the feeding of the pigs. And as he's sitting there in the filth and he's sitting there in the slop surrounded by pigs, he looks around at how far he has sunk. And he says this in verse 17 and 18. He says, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And after he makes this statement, he literally he pulls himself up out of the slop, and he heads for home with the intention that when he arrives, he is going to repent to the Father. From a distance, the Father sees him, and the Father runs to him. The Son, he repents. But the Father, he's not in any mood to punish. All the Father does, wants to do is celebrate. He, he plans a party. He kills the fattened calf, calf because they will celebrate tonight. This son of his who was dead and gone is now alive and he is home again. He was lost, but now he is found. 
if the audience of this parable was truly just to be the lost, the sinners that were gathering around Jesus at the time, wouldn't the story have stopped right there? If I'm just going to open up these scriptures in Luke 15 and I'm going to read them and I'm going to look for myself in the story, shouldn't the story have stopped right there? Because I think almost all of us, to different levels, but almost all of us can see a little bit of that prodigal son in ourselves, can we not? We all have thought that we could go out and we could make it on our own. We all thought that we were smart, that we had all of the answers. We all most of us, have gone through a period in our life where we thought we had no need for a God. So the story should stop right there. And I should be able to say proudly, look at this, guys. Jesus was talking about me because I was lost. I ran away. I made horrible decisions. I hurt people that I loved. Metaphorically, I hope. I know that I was in that slop. I was in that pig pen. But God ran to me. And he rescued me. He forgave me. He welcomed me back into his family. If Jesus stopped talking right there, the story can stop after verse 24. And of course, this party that would have been thrown by this man for his lost son, it certainly would have been greater than the party that was thrown over the 1% of sheep that was found or the 10% of your wealth that was found. But the story doesn't stop there. This is what it says in verses 25 through 32. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and as he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The question again is, who did Jesus tell this parable to? Was he addressing the tax collector? Was he addressing the sinners who you and I might identify with easily? Was he addressing the younger sons of the story? Or was he addressing the Pharisees with whom he had just dined with maybe a few nights previous? Was it possibly the Pharisees that needed to hear how this parable would end? They needed to be reminded about the older son. This older son who was angry that he was so angry and so bitter that he refused to come to the party? Why was it that the, the older son, that he could not come and share in the joy of the father? Right? He, he stomped his feet and he said, you know, I've always been here for you, dad. Through all the ups and downs of life, sickness and in health, I've been there. I always did the right thing. 
even when it wasn't easy. If there were rules that you made, I followed the rules without even asking any questions. But now this ne'er-do-well, this sinner, this one who, who cared so little about you, he couldn't even be bothered to, to hide his disdain that he has for you, his own father. It was this son, Dad, who you threw the party for. But isn't this what we keep getting told over and over throughout this parable? The Pharisees, they were invited to the party. They were, but they were too busy grumbling on the outside, acting like the older brother, than to just come in and celebrate with the father. They were too busy saying, don't celebrate them. I've been here the whole time for you, God. Jesus, come and only dine with us. We have been loyal. Don't party with those that are lost and are now found. It's Easter, and I'm sorry if you don't see what this parable has to do with Easter. I promise you, this is not just some crazy tangent that I went on this morning. Because in this room, there are only two groups of people, as far as I'm concerned, at least. There are those who know God, and there are those who need to know God. There's not black and white. There's not rich and poor. There's not old and young. There's not this neighborhood and that neighborhood. There's not this political affiliation and that political affiliation. There are those who are saved, and there are those who need to be. And if you are one who knows God, the message today is this. In light of what you know happened upon that cross, and in light of the fact that you know that there was an empty tomb, do not let yourself become the older brother. If your name is already recorded in his book, if you have been living a life of faithfulness for years and years and years, if you know that you have a seat saved for you at the table in the Father's house, you better remain grateful. Don't let your eyes wander away to see what is being done for someone else. Don't become so angry with the Father that you would rather sit out in the cold than come to the party with the younger brothers of the world. Don't ever become so arrogant that you start to look around and, and you start to tell God, here's who you should be dining with, God. It is of no consequence to you whom God calls to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. If God allowed Jesus Christ to be battered and broken and killed, if the Son of God would endure that type of disrespect while he was here on earth, why would you be so confident that you deserve something greater? And to those listening today who do not know the Father yet, again, maybe you're here because of an invitation that you received. Maybe mom just forced you to come today. Maybe someone shared a link to this sermon with you months and months from now, but I'm here to tell you that today is a wonderful opportunity for you. Because today you are being presented with the opportunity to get up out of the pig pen, to get up out of the slop right now, today, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter how dirty you think you are, you have the opportunity to stand up and to run home today. Have you seen this picture before ever, anybody? I hadn't until this week. 
So this picture, it, it hangs in a museum in Paris, and I always have trouble saying the name of this museum. It's the Louvre. I feel like I should put a French inflection on and say the Louvre or something like that when I say it. It never comes out right no matter what I say. But this picture has hung in this museum the same walls that hold, you know, like the Mona Lisa and stuff like that. The picture is made to depict, I'm sure you can kind of figure it out, we have this gentleman on the one side with a red feather in his cap. He's kind of sitting back, almost arrogant. If you could get closer, you could see that he was almost smirking as he sat on one side of the chessboard. This character is supposed to represent the devil. And the young man on the other side of the table, you can see he looks perplexed, he looks confused, he looks troubled. The, the painting has a long, fancy French name, but the nickname of this painting is Checkmate. And the story goes like this. I can't tell you that it's a true story, but whether it is or not, it does not matter because the message it gives is true. Is that one day as they walked through the, the Louvre, there was a tour group. And in the tour group, there was a, a grand master chess champion. And they walked from painting to painting as a group, as their guide would explain to them, you know, here's who painted this painting, here's when it was painted, notice this, notice that. They get to checkmate. He explains to him where the painting came from, what the point of the painting is, and they move on. The grand master, though, he's enthralled by this work, right? Chess is his life, so he's studying the painting and looking over it time and time again. Eventually, the tour guide, he realizes he lost somebody, right? One of his sheep has gone astray. He has 99 when he should have 100. So he comes back, and he finds the grandmaster staring at the painting. He says, come on, man, you're missing all kinds of good stuff. And the chess champion, he looks, he says, no, there's a problem. He says, either the painting needs to be changed, or you need to change its name. He says, what do you mean? He says, the, the white player, the young man, he's not in checkmate. His king has one more move. And if he makes that move with his king properly, it's the devil who's checkmated. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ was executed by Roman soldiers. And this happened at, behest, at the behest of probably some of the same men who we found grumbling in Luke 15. And as Jesus Christ, the, the long-awaited-for Messiah, as he hung on the cross and as the life left his body, the arrogant and cocky devil sat back and acted as if heaven had lost as if he had finally won the game, as if he had finally, finally trapped the king. But the king had one more move to make. And on the third day, Jesus would arise from that tomb with our freedom in hand. A message was delivered to the women who came that morning to, to prepare a body. The angel told them that the one that they sought was not there, that he was alive. And it was in this moment that the king made his final move. And it was in this moment that the devil found himself checkmated. Because that perfect sacrificial lamb, the only man who has ever walked earth and led a sinless life, proved to be too much for death to hold down. The curse of sin would now forevermore be broken. Yes, his blood was spilled. Yes, his body was broken. But now on this morning, he walked again with the living. 
And he appeared to many who have given firsthand accounts of walking and talking and, yes, dining with the resurrected Jesus. And many of those who gave those firsthand accounts, they were willing to die for their witness. Through persecution and through imprisonment, they never changed their story. Jesus was risen. And to all of you prodigals, to all of you lost sheep, to all of you valuable coins, the hope of Easter is that you can be found, that you can be welcomed home. When you make the confession that Jesus is your Lord, we are told that there will be a celebration in heaven, and this church family wants to celebrate with you too. There is no magic. There is no fancy pre-qualifications that you must meet if you're ready to come home today. If you want to accept Jesus Christ today, if you want to start living today, if you want to get up out of the pig pen today, you have to do nothing more than what God's Word tells us. You have to confess or announce with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord. You must repent of your sins. That's not so confusing. Again, just get up out of the pig pen and start walking home and you're to be baptized. I'm going to ask our communion servers to come forward, and you guys can just have a seat in this bench right up front here. As Mike mentioned earlier, we share in an open communion here at Meadowbrook Christian Church. That means you don't have to be a member of our congregation. You don't have to be a member of any congregation in order to share in our time of communion, our time of remembrance of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. You just have to have made that confession that Jesus is your Lord. While the trays are being passed, you're going to take your communion elements whenever you feel comfortably, personally, on your own. After that, we're going to close in song. After I finish praying here, I'm going to set up camp right next to this piano. And I will be standing there. If there are... If there is anyone today who is ready to get up out of the pig pen, if there's anybody who is tired of running, that is tired of living in the slop, that is tired of just living a day after day life that has no hope and no joy and no purpose, I would encourage you to come up front and say hi. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love to start talking with you about what your next steps might be. Let's pray.